Well, today we are continuing in our journey through Genesis. We are in chapter 25, if you remember from last time. Last time we covered about the first 22 verses or so. And so that's where we'll pick up today. We'll actually backtrack a little bit. We'll get to back to verse 21. So if you want to turn with me, we're in Genesis 25, and we'll pick up at verse 21. Genesis 25:21. While you're turning there, let me give you a few introductory notes and a little review with you. As I like to say, all good teachers do review. It should be no different here. So first off, let me just say I'm incredibly indebted to men like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, David Guzik, John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, and the list goes on and on for their commentary and their expositional work. I borrow from them heavily in my teaching. Someone asked, hey, how did you learn all of that stuff? (laughs) I read guys that knew more about it than I do, so that's how. Um, Typically, my studying for a sermon looks something like this. I'll read over a passage several times. I'll outline its structure. I'll read it again and again. I'm looking for obvious exegetical points that need to be mentioned or words or phrases that need to be emphasized. And I'll come up with a rough draft and an outline for the sermon. Then I'll read through that. I'll make notes on the points that I've drawn out. If there's certain words or phrases that are key, I'll look those up in the Greek or Hebrew Um, language tools that I have to see if the original language has any extra nuance or clarity to offer. I'm going somewhere with this. After doing all of that, I'll consult some of my well-used and well-trusted commentaries to make sure there isn't some sort of necessary exegetical point that I might have missed. If they have something illuminating to offer, I'll go back and scribble that in where it needs to be. But finally, after all of that, I'll usually try to find at least a handful of sermons on the passage. And I'll listen to other pastors preach this passage, and I'll see, is there something that they're bringing out that I didn't see? Or is there something they're bringing out that I need to investigate further? And um, I say all that to say, I I did that this week, and I just stumbled upon a new guy, if you will, right? Um, A guy who's actually a pastor down in Texas, um, and he just did a bang-up job. I'm not going to lie to you. In fact, he was so good, I was like... I don't even know who this guy is. So I had to go look him up. Lo and behold, he got an MDiv, a THM, and a PhD from Midwestern. Go figure. So, you know, I'm not saying everybody that comes out of there is good. I mean, I know a few of them. They're rough characters. All right? That, no, that's where all three of our guys, our homegrown guys, have gone, and somebody must be doing something right down there. But he was very serious about the Scripture, about the Word, and I was very blessed by him. And so... I'm going to borrow from him as well. Typically, I'll do all of that, and then I try to edit my sermon down for brevity. I'm looking for about seven to nine pages, and I'll actually write it out verbatim because I'm scared that I'll forget something in the process if I don't. Um, Then I'll read through it one last time. I'll basically start preaching it to myself and try to polish it up. That's kind of a rough outline, a rough sketch of how I get to here. So the guy that I stumbled upon was named Dr. Jordan Rogers, and I am definitely drawing from him, so just so you know, it's not plagiarism if you, you know, say where you got it from, right? Just letting you know. So uh, now, having said all that, let's do some review. We talked last time about Abraham had married again after the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. Remember, that's the beginning of chapter 25. He was wed to a woman named Keturah. And through her, he had six more sons. So actually, we have eight children. Most people know of the two main guys, if you will, from Abraham. They know about Isaac. They know about Ishmael, right? But they don't realize, hey, there's actually six other guys in here, too, that were also Abraham's sons. And there's a reason that that's in the narrative. Why is that even mentioned? Well, because that's fulfilling something that God spoke to Abraham. God spoke a covenant promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And that was one of the ways that God was bringing that about. So he was wed to a woman named Keturah even after his wife, his beloved wife, Sarah, passed away. And through her had six more sons. So eight in total. I told you last time. Keturah was his wife, but not in the same sense as Sarah was. <coughs> she was something <coughs> sorry. She was something more akin to a, a kind of a concubine, 
um, didn't have the same rights in that day and age as Sarah would have had and her children the same. But nonetheless, Keturah had six sons who would themselves become the father of many nations, entire nations. Zimran, for example, we were told by Josephus, that was one of Keturah's sons, lived in Arabia Felix, or also known as Fertile Arabia. I told you last time, not all of Arabia is a desert. There are some really fertile places, especially in southern Arabia. Today, it's the land that today we know as Yemen. So, oh, thank you, brother. You, are, you shall not lose your reward. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Boyd has the victory today. No idea what's caused that. Sarah, you're a blessing. Let no one tell you differently. Second son of Keturah was Jokshan, who fathered Sheba and Dedan. You've probably heard of the queen of Sheba. Why is that? That's from him. Sheba and Dedan, both of whom come up again in the Old Testament in prophetic events in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Of course, like I said, the queen of Sheba who came to Solomon to test him and see for herself the splendor and flourishing that his wisdom had brought to his kingdom. And by the way, there's a sermon in there about how righteous and wise leadership brings blessings to a nation. But that's not the sermon I'm preaching today. But I'm just saying it is in there with the Queen of Sheba. Just throwing it out there to you. If you can't find it, you got no preach in you. Midian was the father of the Midianites. Now, typically when we think of the Midianites, what do we think about? I mean, they're, they're wicked people. They were, you know, they were the enemies of Israel, right? That's what we think about. But for a little while, the Midianites were not. Midian himself obviously must have known something about the Lord because when Moses goes to the Midianites, we find Jethro, his father-in-law, right? We find them worshiping the Lord. In fact, he was a priest of the Lord. Remember in the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was sold by his brothers to a group of Ishmaelite or Midianite merchants. When Moses fled the wrath of Pharaoh, he traveled to Midian. That's Exodus 2.15. There he met and married his wife Zipporah, and he served his father-in-law Jethro as a shepherd for 40 years. Those 40 years of shepherding hard-headed, ignorant animals is what God used to prepare Moses to shepherd God's people. Oh, man, that's, that says something about us, doesn't it? Trust me, the parallels are enormous. Have you ever been hard-headed in your naivete and ignorance? I know I have. Not you, though, right? Nah, not you. Maybe your friend in the pew next to you, right? But I'm quite certain I have been, and I'm very thankful for the men that God has sent to shepherd me, who have gently loved and led me through times and seasons like that. But by the way, notice the fact that Jethro in that passage in Exodus was called a priest of Midian in Exodus 2.16. So it seems to indicate the Midianites, at least at this point, were still retaining in their knowledge the true God, the God of Abraham. They were retaining the knowledge of the true God in their culture and in their worship. And at the end of Moses' time in Midian, God appeared to him while he was still in Midian. Uh, and then, of course, commissioned him to lead the Israelites out of slavery to Pharaoh. Right? That was Exodus 3 and 4. At some point, though, the Midianite culture took a hard left. And it turned to idolatry and paganism. I'm sure you have no idea of any kind of Christ, or culture that started out very Christian and has taken a hard left into paganism and idolatry. Right? In fact, later on, they had become such a corrupting influence that when they mingled with the Israelites, God commanded their destruction. There's another great point in there about following the Lord as a nation. Any people, nation, culture, society, etc. that follows the Lord will be blessed Period. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he's chosen as his heritage. And in the same manner, any people or nation that turn their backs on the Lord will soon find his righteous judgment and wrath. And, of course, we in America are finding that out for ourselves. But that's another sermon for another time as well. There was Shua, the youngest of Keturah's sons, he turned northward, traveled into the region known, now known as Syria. It's actually named after him. It's evidenced by the cuneiform texts. The land was named after him. The book of Job, by the way, also records that Job's friend Bildad was a Shuite. It's from Shua. 
When Bildad was giving Job counsel, it is obvious that he still served and feared the God of Abraham. So these men didn't just turn to these different lands. They took the God of Abraham with them when they went. And I think that says something about how Abraham shepherded his children as they grew up. Because where they went, they took the knowledge of God, the worship of God with them. Now, later, many of those cultures would devolve, okay? But those men took the knowledge of God with them. Abraham had, in a a very real sense, been what we today would consider a good Christian father. He had inculcated, right? He He had given to these children. He'd passed them the torch of the faith. And he sent them out. And there's, for various reasons, you know, these... Six children of Keturah were sent out probably so they wouldn't be um, competing with uh, Isaac. But he sent them out with gifts. He gave them gifts. He, he, if you will, equipped them and sent them out. And they took the knowledge of this God with them. And they became great. They made great civilizations. And yet it's possible for great civilizations to turn their backs on the Lord too. To get full of all of their blessings. To get arrogant and proud and think it was because of their own strength and their own cunning and their own wisdom. And that it wasn't because of the hand of the Almighty God that blessed them. To turn their backs on the Lord and to find judgment at the end of the road too. So verses 1 through 6 in chapter 25 really serve to establish the fact that Abraham was, in fact, the father of many nations, just as God had promised him way back in Genesis 17. Remember, in 17.4, God had said to Abraham, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Then, after a rich and full life, Abraham dies. He's 175 years old. This, too, was in fulfillment of the word God said to Abraham. Remember, God had told him in chapter 15, As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. Okay? Verse 7 says this. It says, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, the field which Abraham had purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, along with Sarah, his wife. So Abraham finally passes on to be with the Lord in the, in the beginning of, of chapter 25. He was mo- one of the most important men in all the Bible. I told you he's not just in the Old Testament, by the way, he's the third most mentioned person in the New Testament. Seventy times he's mentioned in the New Testament. The only two figures that are mentioned more in the New Testament are Christ, obviously. Moses, the the only other Old Testament figure that's mentioned more is Moses at 80 times. So he's very, very, not just Old Testament, very instrumental, very influential, very important He is seen as a model of the Christian life where a person is called out from their old life, their old way to begin a new journey of following Christ wherever that might take them. He's the model of that. Abraham's life is one of struggles and even failures of the faith. There's no doubt about that. Abraham struggled and failed in many ways in his life, just as you have. But his life is also one of growth and maturity And conquest by faith, which you have as well. But now, suddenly, in chapter 25, Abraham's gone. We've been tracking with this guy for 13 chapters of the Genesis narrative. And now he's gone. And this work that God has established with Abraham has to now... Do something that at the time would have been very abnormal, very scary. It's got to pass on to the next generation. How do you take this thing? How do you take this faith and encapsulate it and pass it on to another generation? That's what's going on in Genesis chapter 25. The torch of faith is being passed down to Abraham's sons. 
and specifically to the one son, the son of blessing, and that is Isaac. He's the son of promise. And so the biblical narrative will now shift to follow the life of Isaac. We also pointed out last time that we see an incredibly mature character trait in Isaac right up front. Because Ishmael returns to help bury their father Abraham. Remember, I told you, this is long before. There's no email in this day. There's no Pony Express. Right? There's no FedEx to deliver your messages. There's no way that Ishmael would have known that his dad was gone. Except that Isaac would send a messenger. That says something about the character of Isaac. Because remember, this was his childhood bully. This was the guy that picked on him and beat him up. And he's showing some some real character, some real maturity by saying, hey, dad's gone. Come back. That shows a lot of respect. He doesn't let the wranglings and the strivings of their childhood keep him from doing what's right in God's eyes. That's something a lot of us could learn from. There are a lot of people today that are my age, 40, I'm 42, my age or older, that are still desperately grappling with the stuff that happened when they were 13, 14, 15. Dad always loved you more anyway. Mom always did have a soft spot for you. 40 years later, they can't get over it. I can speak to that because I've struggled with it. But Isaac seems to be the bigger man. He sends word. Ishmael comes back. Isaac has the decency to send word to his brother, even the brother that bullied him and picked on him. The dad has died. Come back. Let's bury him and mourn the loss of our father together. That says something of his character. Although Abraham was now dead, though, the purposes and promises of God were not. We must keep that in mind, by the way, in Christianity. The purposes and promises of God cannot stop. And sometimes we get this feeling like we see great men of faith and they pass away and we think, oh, what will Christianity do now? (laughs) I'm ashamed to admit this, but I've been there. I can remember when I was in college, there was a guy that died. I'd never even met the guy. I just read a bunch of his books. His name is Henry Henry Morris. He had had written a lot of books about creation and the flood and and science. And I mean, this guy was basically keeping, you know, he he was my first introduction basically to apologetics. And let me tell you something. When you're in college and you're, you know, your major is in the sciences. Mine was biology and chemistry. And you are willing to stand up and say, I believe the scripture as written. I don't believe the earth is 13.7 billion years old. I don't believe that people evolved from proto-human ancestors. Like you have a target on you, right? And I'm reading this guy's books and he is, it's strengthening me. And I can remember reading, I mean, I got onto my computer. I still remember where I was when I found out. That's how much it impacted me. I still remember where I was when I found out he died. I, I remember what seat I was sitting in in the computer lab at East Central. I pulled up the news for the day and I saw that and it was just like being hit with a ton of bricks. Oh my goodness, he's gone? (sighs) What's Christianity ever going to do? He was this great apologist, now he's gone. Do you know what happened when he died? A thousand others rose up to take his place. I mean, it was like, I'm serious, you didn't hear talk. Today, it's common to see people that know something about apologetics. I'm, I'm really serious about that. At the time, this is the late 90s, you didn't find that stuff. You're trying to, you know, ask a Christian for answers to the faith. Good luck. You had to get online. There was just two or three guys that you could, you know, you could find little sermons or or articles here and there. Answers in Genesis was just kind of coming up to be. But when he passed away, it was as if a, a thousand people answered the call. And I, I, I'm, I'm saying that because we think the same way about like when R.C. Sproul passed away, I, I felt that way. I know some of you probably did too. What are we going to do? He's such a stalwart defender of the faith. What will we do? You know what happens? They're like a seed. And they spend their lives on the gospel. They spend their lives 
pouring into other people. And when they pass away, God uses them like a seed. They die and hundreds of others pop up. And the gospel doesn't get hindered. It spreads. It's the kingdom of God. Just it works in reverse. It works in reverse what you think it would be. And praise God for that. And that's what's going on in chapter 25. This faith, this torch has to be passed on. So through Isaac, the covenantal promises must be carried on. The work of God must continue. And it's just like today. The work of God must continue even when the great saints go on to be with the Lord. The work of the kingdom must continue. It must tread forth. The torch must be passed on. And really, in some ways, we see Isaac doing that. He's exceeding the faith of his father in some ways. Just like his father Abraham, God had promised that Isaac and Rebekah would have children. But then he delayed the fulfillment of that promise. Eerily similar to what just happened with Abraham. Isaac and Rebekah went more than 20 years without a child. They are tested the exact same way that Abraham was. But notice how, notice how they respond to that. The great thing was Abraham was teaching his children from his own failures. Son, when you get into this situation, don't do what I, I failed at this. Don't do what I did. This is what you need to do. When you get into that situation, you plead with God. Don't take it into your own hands and decide you're going to help God out. You plead with God. Let God handle it. You wrestle in prayer and you leave it in his hands. And that's what he did. 20 years. Remember, he was 40 when he got married. That's not, it's none too young getting married. 60 when his wife finally gets pregnant. But notice what he does. He doesn't go find a servant, a maid, to have a child through. Instead, what does verse 21 tell us he did? He cries out to the Lord on behalf of his wife. So Isaac, Isaac did it right. Isaac is taking the faith of Abraham and he's moving forward. In some ways, we see him exceeding Abraham. But in other ways, and that's what we'll see today. In other ways, we'll still see the flesh nature of Abraham. We'll still see the flesh nature of Adam, really, peeking out. So turn with me to verse 24. Let's continue on through this incredible section of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us today great things from your word. Pray you would use me as your mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let this exegesis be accurate to your word and to your spirit. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's skip back down and pick it up at at verse 21, in fact, instead of 24. Let's pick it up at 21. Verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Again, way to go, Rebecca. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And this is where I started getting into last time. The Apostle Paul is actually going to mention this passage in connection with God's sovereign election. I'll tell you right now, I have a love-hate relationship with this doctrine, and there's a reason for it. Um, This doctrine has caused me many a sleepless night. Uh, I, I came to the doctrines of grace um, quite reluctantly. I did not realize election was a word even in the scriptures, and I was a pastor. I guess you just kind of skip over it. You don't want it to be, so you skip over it. That's what I did. You know what happened to me? A terrible thing. I I stumbled onto exegetical preaching. I stumbled onto expository preaching. And so me and the other pastor who were planting this church down in Texas, uh, 
we decided one year, we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to preach expositorily through the New Testament. We're going to make a calendar. We're all going to go. We're going to take the whole church through it. Everybody's going to read one chapter a day, and we're going to preach through whatever chapter it lands on. You know, whatever chapters have been discussed that week, we're going to preach those chapters. And it just so coincidentally, I'm sure it had nothing to do with God's sovereign choice or election. Just so coincidentally, that was tongue in cheek, by the way, fell to me to preach Ephesians. And I thought, oh, great. I love Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books. I love reading through it. And so I start through Ephesians chapter one. And somehow I had read this book. I don't know how many times. But I had never seen predestination. And then I saw it. And I was like, that can't be. And I kept reading and I was like, there it is again. It can't be. Let's go to chapter 2. There it is again. This is not good. And so I, I began to study and I called people that I trusted. And God had it out for me because I did not realize three of these guys who I trusted had in the meantime gotten reformed. I call him up and I'm like, have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Yes, it's crazy. What do you think about this? It's what it says. Yeah, I, I know what it says, but I'm saying, what does it mean? Well, it means what it says. It can't be. It cannot be. Yeah, I had a real trouble. I really did have trouble with it. But now I'm going to pass that trouble along to you. So. The Apostle Paul actually will mention this very thing in Romans chapter 9. And every good Calvinist out there in the congregation is like, oh man, they're excited. They're ready for chapter 9, baby, right? But it's true. That's, God mentions these two, and Paul mentions these two in discussing election. So I'm not going to preach an entire sermon on this topic, but I do need to mention it since it's a textual issue. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And we'll go through a few verses, and then we'll come back to this. Verse 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 9, and we'll read through, I think, 16. Romans 9, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That's one I skipped over. So that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, Paul is actually quoting Malachi chapter 1 when he says that, okay? Don't turn there. Let me read it to you. Malachi 1, 2, and 3 says this, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And I have laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. In fact, that whole section goes on to talk about basically... God is talking through the prophet Malachi to Israel and saying, look, I have loved you and I have hated others. And even Esau is one of those. Now, look at what Paul says about this. What shall we say then? This is verse 14 in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. What is Paul doing with this? Well, he's pointing out here that every person either gets justice or they get mercy from God. They don't get unjustice or injustice. They don't get unrighteousness from God. Nobody gets unrighteousness from God. The problem is we think of humanity in terms of Basically good. That's a good kid. That guy's a good dude. Those are some good people. Right? And I, I understand what we mean when we say that. We don't mean it in absolute terms. We're talking on relative scales here. But God speaks in absolute terms, or can speak in absolute terms. And he knows what sin is. 
Paul is pointing out here, no one gets injustice from God. There's no unrighteousness with God. It is not unjust for God to deliver a sinner to the just punishment that his sin merits. It is not unjust or unrighteous to punish sin with wrath. God's wrath is the just punishment that the sinner deserves. And we have forgotten that. If you missed this morning, you missed it. Um, Justin did a great job talking this morning about um, the virgin birth. But one of the things that he said, and he's exactly right, was we have lost the teaching of depravity. He's right. We have lost the teaching that people are basically sinful. We've been raised in a culture that says man is basically good. He just needs the rough edges knocked off. That's not true. And that's not scriptural. The scripture says all men have fallen short of the glory of God. That all have sinned. That no one seeks God. We, we, we lost that one. That's what the, the scripture says. No man seeks God. What do you do about people that are seeking God? People don't seek God. The only people who seek God are the ones that God has sought himself and changed their heart. Why are they seeking God? Because he first sought them and found them. Right? You're not seeking God. He's not the one that's lost. <laughs> right? You're not, you, you get it. Yeah. God's wrath, though, we have to get this in our minds because we don't understand the gospel if we don't. God's wrath is the proper punishment for sin. Remember, God knows the truth about sin. We don't. You know why we don't make good judgments when it comes to sin? Because we're sinners. We're biased toward ourselves, right? If you have someone who's a habitual liar, they typically don't think of lying as a big deal, right? I have been around men. I was doing prison ministry. I've been around men who really thought murder wasn't a big deal as long as it was a bad dude. Right? I've never killed anybody that didn't deserve it. Oh, well, you're so righteous. No, we're biased towards sin because we are sinners too. The reason that God is the only one who can actually make a valid judgment on what sin is and how bad it is and what the proper punishment for it is is because he's the only one without it. We can't. Listen, if man had decided to make up the Bible, I, I've heard that before. I actually had a, strangely enough, had a conversation in a line at Walmart about this thing because I heard the guy who was checking the other dude out having that conversation. And the dude's like, yeah, there's really no difference between all the religions. It's just a, uh, you know, it's just a faith choice. And I'm like, you know me, I can't stay silent. My poor wife's with me. Like, here we go. I know she's looking over at me. She knows. It's coming. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. As this guy's moving out, you know. Excuse me, sir. So anyway, so we have this big discussion on this. No, Christianity's not like the others. And if the Bible was just an invention of men, that would not be the punishment of sin. The gospel story would never be created by sinful creatures like us. And it's one of the... One of the evidences that the very thumbprints, the fingerprints of God are on this scripture. Yes, the Bible was written by men, but it wasn't written just by men. It was written by men who were inspired by the very spirit of God. The spirit of God flowing through them. They're writing down his very words. God is not unjust to give the sinner what the sinner deserves. And Paul is defending that in this passage. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's the proper payment for work that's done. You have earned God's wrath. The wages of sin is death. What's the end of that? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. God is not unjust to give the proper wage to a person who's earned it. But he's also not unjust to give some people mercy. What? Well, how can that be? Because he earned it. Jesus Christ earned that mercy 
for those whom he chooses. It is a proper wage that's given not on their behalf, but on his. That's the gospel. That you get what you did not earn. That Jesus took what you did earn. That's the gospel. You didn't earn salvation. God does not give salvation as a gift to the righteous. He does not. It's a gift for the guilty. No, your sin earned death. That's the proper wage. And Jesus Christ has earned mercy on your behalf. It's a proper wage given on his behalf. He has literally earned the mercy and pardon of his people. Now look at how verse 16 so beautifully sums this up, and I'm going to hit this. 16, so then it is not of him who wills. You just have to exercise your will. and just, It is not of him who wills. Nor is it of him who runs. You can't just try for it. By any person that just ever wants to just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and be a good person, they'll come to Jesus. That is not true. They do not have the power. They have the permission. They don't have the power. No man can come to me, John 6.44 says, unless he's drawn. It's not of him who wills. It is not of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. Why are you here today? It's not because you woke yourself up early enough to get here. It's because Jesus Christ, before time began, decided he would get you up. He would decree that you were here to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God decrees, man acts on. He acts out. I think some of us need to underline that first part that's not of him who wills. We've absolutely made an idol out of man's will in this culture. We've idolized man's will. We think man's will can cure anything. If I just try hard enough, if I just believe deep enough, and that's the, the theology of our day. I don't mean Christians. I mean everybody. By the way, that's called pragmatism. Well, there's some other words for it, too. Some entire denominations have named themselves by it. God's word clearly tells us we are not saved simply because of our own will. Now, listen, don't mishear me. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that your will had nothing to do with it. I am saying God changed your will so that you would be willing to come to Christ. I'm saying before that, you were absolutely at arm's length. You would not come. I will not. You are a rebel. And God says, I will overcome even that and I'll bring them to myself. Some of the most rabid free will theologians have come up with all kinds of mental gymnastics to attempt to make this verse say something else entirely. And I've read those guys because I were with those guys. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Because it infuriates them to read what it actually says. Look, I wrote a pamphlet at one time. I did. These were my youth pastor days. Please forgive me. I wrote a pamphlet about how Calvinism was doctrine of demons. I did. And I warned all my friends against it and my students. <laughs> when I posted on Facebook the first time that I had become Reformed, I got all kinds of messages from my old friends and people who had gone to me in church are like, hey, somebody hacked your account, bro. <laughs> You're right, it was Jesus. <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> God can change hearts even like that. The reason that section of Scripture, though, infuriates so many people is because we've grown up in a culture that idolizes the power of our will. We've grown up in a culture that basically says you can do anything you set your mind to. Right? You've heard it. I've heard it. I've said it. We might call it the Invictus culture. Right? Are, are you all familiar with that poem? Familiar with Invictus? If you're not, it's okay. My guess is you probably are. I'll start reading this and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's I've heard that before. I, I had to actually memorize some of that poem in public school, which is, of course, neutral education. I'll bet you are more familiar with it than you realize. Here's the final stanza. It matters not how straight the gate nor charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. 
I am the captain of my soul. Ever heard that? I bet you have. That poem, by the way, came from the pen of William Ernst Henley, who was a militant, self-declared atheist. He hated the Christian faith, and his poem, Invictus, was written as a statement of rebellion against the Christian God. Somebody should have just popped him in the head and said, hey, Psalm 2, buddy, God replies, right? His poem was a statement of rebellion against God's authority to reign over humans. And many impressionable young public school children will be memorizing that poem, at least in whole or in part, because it's said to stand as a great statement of humanity. Well, you need to read this and memorize it so you can be cultured. That's what I did. I had to memorize it so I could be cultured. Right? We were taught at a very young age, man's the ultimate authority in all things. And we uncritically memorize a host of man-centered slogans that we pick up from our textbooks, our classes, our movies, our music. And we set about repeating them mindlessly day in and day out. Things like, you can do anything you set your mind to. Just follow your heart. Believe in yourself. And at the end of the day, we've trained ourselves to believe that we are the captains of our fate. We are the masters of our souls. And so when we read a portion of Scripture that says something opposite that, it just does not compute. Error. The math doesn't work. We can't reconcile it. Surely God's word can't really mean that, can it? How can God truly be sovereign if I'm the captain of my fate and the master of my soul? Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not as much the master and commander of your destiny as you once imagined yourself to be. Have you ever considered that? Maybe what God ordains, man acts out. And maybe what man acts out, God has ordained. God's sovereign will will always be carried out, even to the most minute detail. And as much as I would love to harp on that point, I'm not going to. It's not my sermon for the day. Let's get back to our text, Genesis 25. But hopefully that gives you a little something you can think about later. When you're pondering on how much the master of your fate you are. Think about that. You're the master of your fate. Do you know how many things you would have to control to be the master of your own fate? You'd have to be able to control every other human that you have interaction with. You can't control you. At least not perfectly. Right? Tell me you're the master of your fate. Get out of here, nonsense. If you were the master of your fate, we wouldn't be looking for a church building for sure. Every one of you would be like, I won the lottery again, man. It's crazy. Third time in a row. Master of my fate. Anyway, okay, back to 25. So verse 24 in Genesis chapter 25, verse 24 says this. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. It's as if God really knew what he was talking about. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Esau means red. By the way, this description tells us that by today's standards, these boys were probably born a little premature. This hairy stuff, this is a description of what anatomists call lanugo hair. If you're, a, if you're a nurse or you're a doctor or you work in the medical field, you're probably familiar with that. Lanugo hair is a soft, downy kind of hair that covers the body of some newborns. Typically, it's very downy, soft, and unpigmented. It's actually the first type of hair to form uh, from a hair follicle. Uh, it can be found, when it's on the body, it can be found everywhere on that baby's body except the palms, lips, and the soles of their feet. It covers them entirely. But most babies will develop this around the fourth or fifth month, and they will actually, it'll, it'll be gone by the seventh or eighth month of development. However, uh, some babies will still have it when they're born, especially those that are born premature. And then a few weeks afterwards, it'll basically fall out, and those follicles will start growing, you know, the normal hair. But occasionally, little premature babies will have this hair, and it can actually even be red which comes from a certain protein being expressed in the hair. I'd love to get into that, but I know it doesn't really matter. It's kind of a nerd thing, but that's what I do every day. So I'm like, it's exciting for me to share this information. So probably a little bit premature, but very healthy. Let's go on. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So he's called Jacob because, and that means supplanter. Technically, okay, so, so the literal use of the word is supplanter, but that's not really what it means in context. Just in case you're not aware, we don't always use words in their literal sense. In fact, quite often we don't. Okay, words have a range. We call it semantic range. They have a range of meanings, right? Like, for example, if you see somebody do a cool trick, you say, that was really cool. You do not mean, oh, it was exothermic, like it was cooling itself down, right? No. You're using that word in a way that's not strictly literal, all right? So Jacob's name means supplanter. Well, yeah, that's the literal version, but what it really means is someone that usurps somebody else or someone that tries to seize something that's not his. Man, that's prophetic. Yeah. In fact, the word is often used to describe someone who takes or seizes what isn't theirs, like a thief. He catches the heel. He snares somebody. So both of these names, Esau being red and Jacob being the supplanter, are prophetic. Esau, the red, would be known for bartering away his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Meanwhile, Jacob, the supplanter, would be known for seizing a birthright that wasn't his to begin with. It was prophetic on both parts. Verse 27, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And what a testament to bad parenting. What a testament to the sin nature. Notice something. Why does Isaac love Esau? Isaac loved Esau because Esau was his son. That's why you love your son. Why do you love your son? Because they're your son, right? My son, I have to tell you a story. My son got in trouble, I don't know, maybe a week ago or something like that with Neo, my four-year-old, just turned four. He gets in trouble and he got a, a, a disciplining and he was not happy about it. Dad, he's so mad at me, you know, he comes and crawls in my lap. Dad, I don't love you. And I said, uh, yes, you do. You can't help it. You love me because I'm your dad. You might not be happy, but you still love me. You see his little four-year-old brain like turning. The wheels are working. Well, then, Dad, you don't love me. (laughs) Yes, I do. You're my son. I'll always love you, and that will never change. Even when you're in trouble, I'll still love you. You know why? Because I'm your dad. I want you to notice what we're seeing right here. Isaac loves him because he eats of his game. Isaac loves Esau because of what Esau can do for him. And before you get too haughty about that, tell me that is not part of our culture today. And I'll point you to a hundred different parents that are in love with their son because he's the football star or the basketball star or the baseball star. Or the whatever star. And they love when they go down to the coffee shop in the morning. Everybody knows. That's little Johnny's dad over there. And these guys that had no kind of, you know, social cred, street cred. All of a sudden, well, they're cool again. Maybe the coolness they didn't have in high school. Now they have because their boy is cool. He's the star. And they're loving their child now because of what they get out of it. Rather than just, that's your son. Let me ask you something. If the reason you love your little Johnny is because he's such a great football player, what, what happens when he comes home and says, Dad, I just want to play in the band? <clears throat> Fireworks. I've been that guy. I've seen it. It's incredibly commonplace in our culture. Or maybe the mom that loves her daughter because her daughter's the cheer squad captain. Or she's the beauty queen. What happens when she doesn't want to do that anymore? Well, there's fireworks at home. Why? Well, because you're not just hurting you, you're hurting me. In our family, we play football. You laugh, I've heard that. You got a scholarship and you're not going to play? Are you stupid or something? 
No, every time I play this game a lot, I, I have problems remembering. The game is literally making me stupid. I can't think. That, that really did happen to me, by the way. At the end of the semester, I'd have a stutter. I can't, I, I can be in class, I can't remember the things that I'm supposed to remember. I can't, I, I got a headache that lasts for two weeks. You're taking, you're hitting guys so hard. You're playing in college, especially. Your head's hitting so hard. Your ears, seriously, your ears ring for two or three hours. They ring all the practice. And then, you, you know, your coach gets mad. I was yelling things to you. How'd you not hear me? Uh, my ears are ringing. I can't hear anything. You're going to have to signal something in here, coach. Then when you signal it in, I can't remember it five seconds later. Something's, something's wrong up here. What happens when that kid stops? Let's really ratchet up the heat. What if little Johnny quits football because he feels like God is calling him to be a pastor or a missionary? And that should be something that every parent just, you know, if you're a Christian parent, that's something you should be, you know, clapping about, right? My son wants to serve the Lord. He's going to use his free time to learn a foreign language instead of playing football. Hey, how's that going to go in most Christian homes today? I'm serious. Why? Why would that be so controversial in so many homes that are called Christian? Well, because of the gross idolatry that still rules in our hearts. Why was this going on with Jacob and Esau? Because there was still gross idolatry in Isaac's heart. And the Lord was drawing it out. And he was subduing it. Any parent that loves their, parent, their children because of what their children can do for them is certainly falling short of the mark. It's grossly idolatrous. And you know what? We're all going to be tempted to that at some point. You're proud of your kids. You're proud of their accomplishments. But that pride can go too far. Pastor Jordan Rogers, that was the guy I was listening to, had this to say, and I very much agree with him on this. He says, this passage, verses 26 to 34, really shows three kinds of exchanges that people will make when they're being led by their fleshly appetites rather than being led by the Spirit of God. He says it this way, when your God is your gut, these are the things you'll do. Number one, you'll exchange favor for benefit. Rather than loving people for who they are, it's what can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? Number two, they'll exchange righteousness for cheap pleasure. This might be the right thing to do, but this other thing will feel good. Number three, they will exchange what is eternal for what is immediate. You ever made an exchange like that? Have you ever followed your fleshly appetites, your fleshly desires, and traded away what you knew was right in God's eyes for quick pleasure? Well, then you shouldn't be scoffing at Esau. I have too. And you have as well. And if we could put up here on this screen every time you or I has done this, we wouldn't leave here till Christmas. You've done it and so have I. We've done it because sin is deceptive. That's the deceiving nature of it, isn't it? It promises something it can't ever really deliver. Yeah, you've done something like that. You've traded away what you knew was right in God's eyes for quick pleasure, for temporary comfort. You have, and so have I, and it was sin. And just as Isaac's fleshly appetites caused strife and division and destruction in his life, it will do the same thing to yours, to mine. Let's quickly delve into this passage, and we'll see how these exchanges play out. 29, now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. In Hebrew, by the way, the word Edom means red. 
Esau was red at his birth, and he sold his birthright for a red stew. In fact, if you look this up in, in Hebrew, it's very interesting because he doesn't even know what the, the stew is called. He just he repeats it twice as if he's studying that red, the, the red stuff over there. Just give, give me that, that, some of that red stuff that you're making. He doesn't even know what's in the pot. He just knows it looks red and it smells good. Give me some of that. And Jacob's reply is, give me the most precious thing you own, and I'll give you some of this red stuff. And Esau is like, okay, yeah, sure, why not? Hey, young people, you might be tempted to that. Give me this most precious thing you own, your own body, and I'll love you. Give me this most precious thing that you have, your birthright, and I'll give you a little bit of stew. We look at that and we go, what a fool! And we don't even realize that we are tempted to do the same thing. Jacob said, sell me your birthright of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What good's a birthright to me? Sin ever made you kind of uh, get a little bit uh, little melodramatic? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Sometimes when you're really tired, you make really poor decisions. Poor spiritual decisions too. Okay, Even Jesus took naps every now and again. Sometimes even in a boat in the middle of a storm. This ain't the time to be napping. Why? We're going to sink. Now, maybe not. I'm about to die. He's not about to die. Spoiler alert, he was not about to die. So what good is a birthright to me if I die? So Jacob says, then swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, look, Jacob is wrong here, too. We, we missed that. We, we think of Esau like that was sin on Esau's part. It definitely was sin on Esau's part. He was given this by his, he was given this by something only God can give. God is the one who determines birth order. Jacob knew this is something I can't get. I'm not first. And Jacob knew God's the one that controls that. I ain't gonna go talk to God about it. I'm not gonna go pray to God about it. I'm going to steal it. I'll scheme it. I can't get this honestly in the natural, so I'll lie my way to it. I'll scheme my way to it. I'll deceive my way to it. I'll catch my way to it. I'll seize it somehow. That's exactly what he does. He grows into his name. 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. He ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. He went his way. I thought he was about to die. Where's the collapsing? Where's the falling down? Oh, I'm about to die. Somebody call a medic. He's just hungry. And he's willing to exchange his birthright for his appetite. There isn't even any meat in the pot. Esau traded off his birthright for a bowl of beans and a little bit of bread. He traded off something only God could give for the measliest of meals. There are some things that God bestows on you and you can only give it away once. And Esau does it for just a little temporary pleasure. Was it worth it? Philippians 3, 18 through 19 says this, For many walk of whom I've told you often, and now I'm telling you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, Whose God is their appetites, or some versions say whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their own shame, who set their minds only on earthly things. That's an accurate description of a life set on fleshly appetites. A life set after your fleshly appetites will make you the enemy of the cross, and it will result in your destruction. And when that moment of temporary pleasure is done, you'll be filled with regret because you'll know without a doubt it wasn't worth it, and you made the exchange anyway. Let me close with this. 
Sin always promises more than it can deliver. When you act on your sin, you'll get only a fleeting and momentary satisfaction. It's not a true soul satisfaction. It's carnal satisfaction that's tainted with conviction and shame and regret. It does not, it cannot, it will not satisfy your soul. God promises true joy and true delight is found only in Him. Here's a quippy little saying for you to remember. Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Esau and Jacob both found that out the hard way. Rather than falling into their footsteps, let us instead flee today to Christ. Are you tempted, Christian? Are you tempted by that? To throw it away for beans and bread? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. He satisfies. He's the only one able to deliver. But he is able and he is willing. And he will deliver you out of the snare of the fowler. He's faithful to be his people's savior. He's faithful to be his people's guide. Let us fall on him today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that what you've shown us today in your word will be an encouragement to your people. Let it edify your body. Lord, let it strengthen us in our walk with you. Let it strengthen us in our stand against the world, against the devil, and against our own sinful flesh. Watch over us, Lord. Deliver us, God. Keep us all until we meet again. In Jesus' name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen.